All right, all right. As you, uh, as you take your seat, make sure you're making room for those around you. Uh, we want to be able to fit in as many pot people as possible. I'm so glad you're here. I should have told Pastor Michael that he had to stay within the first two rows because, you know, he's such an extrovert. He's going to go for everybody. So uh, it's good to be with y'all this morning. We are in our third week of this series uh, we're calling Legacy as we kind of are studying all about the legacy that God wants to build uh, through your life and through your family. Like we have said each week that our hope, like the hope of our parenting is that our children ultimately will live not unto themselves, but unto the Lord. But uh, guaranteeing that is not something that is in our control. Like that's what we long for. That's what we hope for. But we can do nothing to guarantee that our kids will ultimately walk with Christ. Like we can lay a foundation for them. We can pray for them. We can teach them. We can do what we're supposed to do. We can be faithful, uh, but we need to place them in the hands of God. And so what does faithfulness look like? As we saw last week, uh, Christ-centered parents communicate through the normal rhythms of their life that God's approval matters most. And so whether it's in your instruction or your discipline or just your day-to-day, the normal rhythms of your life communicate that the pleasure of God is the supreme value in your home. Like as God tells the nation of Israel, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And then you are to teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. And so last week we looked at the the contrasting parenting rhythms of Eli and Hannah. And we saw by their examples that if you choose the wrong rhythm for your parenting, you can be a failure before you fail. Like your kid may be doing great. Everybody may be giving you the thumbs up. He may be the high priest like Eli's kids were. And yet you would have already failed because you were a me-centered or a child-centered or a culture-centered parent. And yet, if you choose the right rhythm for your parenting, you can be a success. Even if by the world standard, you don't succeed. Even if the world looks on and they see a child who for a moment, for a time is in rebellion against you, like you can be a success because you are faithful to God in that moment. And so don't let failure have the last word. It's never too late to change the rhythm of your parenting. Like no matter where you are in your parenting, it's never too late to start being faithful. Remember, God can do more with your weakness than you can do with your strength. And guys, that's a a great parenting principle. If you could bring that up. There we go. God can do more with your weakness than you can do with your strength. To prove that, let me ask you one question. How did your parents do? Like, how did your mom and dad do? And this whole parenting thing. Like when you think about all the stuff you know, all the stuff already at this moment in your parenting, you kind of bring to the table within your household, how did your parents do? Did they ever fumble or falter? (laughs) 
Did they make mistakes, even huge mistakes? Were they divided in their priorities? Were they divided in, in their faith? Like, how did they do? Did they consistently model for you what Christ-centered parenting is supposed to look like? Like, how did they do on the four parenting responsibilities that we talked about in the first week? These four responsibilities right here. Like, did they love you with the kind of love that reflects the unconditional love that God has for His children? Or did you feel like that their acceptance of you was somehow always out of reach? Like you had to earn it, but you could never quite get there. Like did your parents build wisdom into your life so that you could see all of life from God's perspective? Like were your parents people of the Word? Like was that the natural rhythm of their life that they were in the Word and they had the expectation that you would be in the Word? Like did, did they take time to instruct you as their child from the only source of absolute and unchanging truth or were your parents simply kind of pragmatic in your upbringing? Like, did, did they take the time in their times of discipline to explain the moral reason why they were disciplining you? Like, did they discipline you well? Making God's moral order a felt reality? Or were they too harsh? <laughs> or maybe too easy? Like, did they discipline, discipline you as, and, and use that time of discipline as an opportunity to point you to the cross? To point you to Jesus, like we talked about last week? To point you how we all need Him, and because of that rebellion that goes on in our hearts, that's why God had to send His Son? Or did they just simply punish you? How did your parents do? And did they train you for independence, like launching you into life? When you graduated from high school, when you went away to school or started a, you know, working at a company or got married, were you equipped and prepared by your parents to stand firm for Jesus? Like, did they aim you at the right target? And did they model for you what it meant to truly follow Christ? How did your parents do? Did they get it right? Or did they miss the mark? Like, I know it's a tall order, but how did your parents do? I mean, if you are honest, that there is, it's probably a very good uh, chance that your parents will never make uh, like the next episode of Focus on the Family or Parenting Magazine, right? And yet, hear this, and yet, you are here this morning. Your parents blew it. And you're here this morning. Your parents fumbled and faltered and you're here this morning. Your parents didn't get it right. They had hypocrisy in their life and you saw it and yet you're here this morning. I mean, think about that for a moment. You are gathered with the church on the Lord's Day to hear God's Word, to worship Him in song, to commune with His Son at this Lord's table and to enjoy the fellowship of the saints. Who saw that one coming? Like I didn't. 
I mean, I just think about my own life. I never saw that coming. Church was not a part of our lives. And yet I'm here this morning. No one's forcing you to be here. No one's twisting your arm. We're not going to give away a truck at the end of the service. And yet you're here this morning. You see, God can do more with our weakness than we could ever do with our strength. And so today's sermon, guys, is for the weak among you. It's for the parent who feels like they are fighting a losing battle. It's for the grandparent with limited access and influence on the spiritual development of those sweet grandkids that they love so dearly. It's for the step-parent who started late and just can't seem to catch up. This sermon is for the single parent who feels alone, out of energy, and maybe just a little bit terrified that their kids might follow their example. This sermon is for the believer married to the unbeliever. Or for the parent who loves Jesus dearly, married to the person who simply is content to just go to church. It's for, the, it's for the parent who feels powerless. Like the cards are stacked against them and there's no way this whole parenting thing with their kids is going to end well. And this sermon is for the parent who recognizes maybe for the very first time that they actually are powerless. All of their energy, all of their time, they're just spinning the wheels. If any of that sounds like you, then this sermon is for you. If it doesn't sound like you, take good notes because it will. That's just the reality of life. Guys, you never stop parenting. Like Amy and I have been reflecting on this series and talking about this and Pastor Michael and I have been talking about this. Like our kids are grown. Our kids have kids. And I still worry about my kids. Like it's so weird. Like they're grown-ups. They know like like they, they know how to change a flat tire. And yet I still worry, I'm still concerned, I still pray for them because parenting never ends. And so our hope, like I've said in parenting, is that ultimately our children will live unto the Lord and not to themselves and at that moment when we see that, we know all is well. Regardless of sickness, regardless of employment, regardless of what their credit score is and whether they graduated with honors, if they're living for the Lord, all is well. And so let me this morning show you a concrete example of what it looks like to live unto the Lord and not unto yourself. In Philippians 2, Paul writes this, to this church he loves so well, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon. See, Paul's in prison at this point for the faith, and he says, you know what? I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in 
the gospel. Man, that is high praise. Like as Paul talks about this young man, Timothy, he says, you know how it is in the world. Everybody is concerned about themselves. They're focused on their own interests. He's just written about that. And then he says, let me give you an earthly example of what I'm talking about. His name is Timothy, and I hope to send him to you soon. Timothy was Paul's disciple, his protege, his partner in the gospel. He was the one that pastored the church after Paul planted it. Like at one point when the church in the city of Corinth is kind of out of control, like morally, doctrinally, like they are a complete mess. Paul is so burdened for where they are spiritually that he just longs to be with them. And so he writes them and he says, I'm so burdened that I want to give you a concrete example of what it means to follow Christ. And so I'm going to... And you expect him to say, be there tomorrow? Instead, so he says, so I'm going to send you Timothy. Because I want you to see a picture of what it looks like to follow Christ. And this young man does it. Like he follows Jesus with his whole heart. Once again, that's high praise. you got to wonder, where did Paul find this guy? Well, we read in Acts chapter 16, Paul's introduction to young Timothy. Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. You see, Timothy grew up in a spiritually divided home. He had a Christian mom, who was Jewish by heritage, and he had a pagan dad whose, dad whose name we never even learn. And not only were, was he in a spiritually divided home, but this was a time when women were viewed as just a step above slaves. And so there was no equality of the sexes. Like she was not seen as equal status to her husband's. By the way, side note, that came because of the gospel. Like, ladies, if you wonder why you have the rights that you have, it's because God gave them to you in the Gospel. Like, when the Gospel came to Rome, everything changed. Like, when the Gospel came to Greece, everything changed. And so she's married to this pagan. She's seen in that culture as just about equal to a slave. I mean, Timothy's mom was powerless. In fact, Timothy's name means literally honoring God. And his parents likely had different gods in mind when they agreed on that name. In Acts 16, Timothy was most likely in his late teens, maybe in his early 20s. He had probably been converted by Paul at their first missionary journey about a year or so earlier. And in that time, he had already developed a reputation of faithfulness with the church to the point that Paul added him to his ministry team at that moment. His mom must have been thrilled. I mean, after all, our hope is that our kids would live not unto themselves, but unto the Lord. And her son has an opportunity for this. But before you start thinking that all of your, all of, all that your kids need, is for an evangelist like Paul to come to town and lead them to Christ and then everything will be good. Let's see what Paul says about what he was given to work with in young Timothy. 
In 2 Timothy 1.5, this is what Paul writes to Timothy about his upbringing. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Do you hear that? Like writing to this young pastor that he's left to lead the church as the teaching elder of the city of Ephesus, he tells him, hey, I know you have a sincere faith. I see it. But you know what? <laughs> I see it, but I saw it somewhere first. I saw it in your mom. And I saw it in your grandma. And that's why I know it's in you as well. Like Timothy's faith was caught. He got it from his mom. He got it from his grandma. Like in a pagan culture, Lois and Eunice did not assimilate. They did not fit in. They didn't just blend in to the mix of pagan culture. They held on to their Jewish faith as they waited for the consolation of Israel. And as Paul arrived on that first missionary journey, to proclaim that the Messiah had come, their hearts must have leapt within them and they placed their faith in Jesus. Both Lois and Eunice modeled for Timothy a sincere faith. <laughs> like they were the real deal, deal. Their faith was genuine. It was not hypocritical. In fact, like the word sincere literally means not hypocritical. And a hypocrite in the first century wasn't somebody that like we think of that doesn't live what they say they believe. A hypocrite was another term for an actor who would hold a mask up in front of his face to pretend he was somebody while staging a play. And so sometimes the actor would play two or three characters in the same play. And so they would keep changing masks. And what Paul is saying of Timothy and of Lois and Eunice is that your faith isn't simply a mask that you wear. Like it's the real deal. It's genuine. Down to your bones. Like I've, I've told um, like young pastors before, like when they get up to preach, like they need to bring it. Like they need to bring the Word of God. They need to believe what they're saying that they may have people in their audience who will leave saying, I don't believe a thing that guy said. But this is what they should follow it up with. I don't believe a thing that guy said, but obviously he does. And you see, that's where Timothy finds himself during Paul's first missionary journey. Like he's, he's right at the cusp of placing his faith in the Messiah to come. And he knows that his mom and his grandma really genuinely believed this. And probably because of what they had done in investing in him, he himself was ready to respond to the Gospel. Timothy's faith was caught from his mom and from his grandma. But Timothy's faith was also taught. It was also taught. In 2 Timothy 3.14, Paul writes this, But as for you, writing to Timothy, Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. Well, who are those? And how from your infancy 
you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. When I read that, I think, well, you know what? Both Lois and Eunice read the Scripture to Timothy. In fact, they read it, Paul says, from his infancy. Like from his earliest days, they were reading the Scripture over him. Over this young man, this gift of God, whose name means to honor God, probably praying over him that he would live out his name. That he would honor the one true God. Lois and Eunice may have been powerless, but God's Word was not. And you may be powerless, but God's Word is not. Hear that. You may be powerless. You may think, I'm from a, I'm in a divided marriage. Or my husband or wife has little interest in spiritual things. They'll go through the motions with me. And they tend to have a greater influence on our child than I do. Like you may think I'm a single mom, a single dad. I get them a few days during the week or a weekend or two during the month. Like what difference can I make? You may be powerless, but God's Word is not. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Can I just tell you, the Bible has power that even the unbeliever does not recognize. And yet when they hear it, the Spirit of God enlivens the Word of God and does something in the heart of those people. Like, why is it that Billy Graham got up in front of thousands, millions, for year after year, decade after decade, and simply said, the Bible says... And then he would quote it or he would read it. Why? Because we know, guys, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. God's Word is alive. It's active. It's powerful. It has the ability to cut through like all the pretension, all the lies, all the roadblocks that we put up in front of it. Like I remember reading the Bible as a young man and it just stabbing me in the heart. I mean, think about it. The Bible here, it's described like a knife that cuts you in the heart. And so when you share it with somebody, it's kind of like you're stabbing them. But what if they could read it for themselves during the week? Go home and stab themselves in the heart all week. What might God do with that? What might God do with the simple obedience of a mom or a grandma who reads the Word over their children and prays it over their children. You are powerless, but God is not. And His Word is not. Lois and Eunice knew that God's Word could do what they could not do. In fact, they had been personally transformed by the Word of God. God says in Isaiah 55, this about the Bible as it goes forth, the Word of God as it goes forth. It says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, I don't know if y'all remember rain, <laughs> but as the rain and snow come down from heaven 
and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out of my mouth. God is saying, listen, when the word comes, it's like that rain that we long for. Like, I mean, think about it. Just when the rain comes, you look at your lawn the next day and you think, wow, like it does so much better than just watering, right? Like God did that. And God is saying, that's just, that's just an earthly illustration about what happens when my word comes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And what will God's Word produce? What's that purpose as it goes forth? In verse 13, he says this, instead of the thorn bush will grow a pine tree. And instead of briars, a myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will be not be destroyed. Like God is building a legacy through His Word. As His Word goes forth, the legacy is built. Like I love what Paul Tripp in his book, Do You Believe, says about this verse, verse 13. He says, we must admit that this is one of the strangest word pictures in all of the Bible. If you had a thorn bush in your backyard, you wouldn't say, you know what? If it keeps raining, that thorn bush will turn into a pine tree. I mean, we wouldn't say that. It's kind of crazy. You would never think that a well-watered briar may somehow morph into a myrtle. What is the prophet trying to communicate by stretching our botanical understanding? What does this metaphor tell us about what God intends the truths of His Word to produce? Isaiah's strange word picture paints a picture of radical organic transformation. The plant that is being watered becomes an entirely different plant. So it is with the Word of God. God's plan is that when the rain of biblical doctrine falls on us, it would change us. Not that we would become better renditions of ourselves, but that we would become spiritually different than we were before. As the rain of truth falls, angry people become peacemakers. Greedy people become givers. Demanding people become servants. Lustful people become pure. Faithless people become believers. Proud people become humble. Rebels become obedient. And idolaters become worshipers of God. Lois and Eunice may have been powerless, but the Word of God wasn't. You may be powerless, but the Word of God is not. And so Justin, how do we apply this? How do we lean into this truth? Well, if you have younger kids, I would encourage you to buy a little book called, a big book called The Biggest Story. Storybook Bible by Kevin DeYoung. And if your kids are, you know, early, mid-elementary on down, start reading them that book at night. Like, read them those stories, and when you're done, read it again. And when you're done, read it again. And when you're done, read it again. Fill their mind with the great stories 
of the Scripture. Like I remember when our kids were growing up, man, how many Bibles did we give them? Right? We gave so many Bibles. Like they're all over our house. Like they only need one. And we gave them like one, like every, at least every other year. We'd give them a Bible and a devotion or a notebook so they can keep notes because we just wanted them to be in the Word of God. Parents, buy your kids Bibles. Like if your kids are in elementary school, take them through the New City Catechism. Look at that, look it up online. It's a great catechism, very solid, very biblical and evangelical. Take them through the New City Catechism. There are songs with it, and you can teach them the faith through song and through some healthy repetition. Another thing you can do is partner with our children's ministry and student ministry. Find out what they're teaching your kids and join them in it. In fact, you can join them in it by serving in children's ministry or in student ministry. Like partner with those ministries to raise your kids right. Another thing we can do is make God's Word the normal rhythm of your own life. Like if you don't have the Dwell app, download the Dwell app. Begin to listen. Begin to pray and fast for your children. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Everywhere, all of the time. Every posture, every activity. In planned times and unplanned times. Finally, a thing you can do that Eunice and Lois did was read the Bible over your children. Read the Bible to your children. Read the Bible with your children. And you may ask, what's the value of that? Ask Lois and Eunice. Like I know for me, growing up in a non-Christian home, I remember when I was six years old, my dad, who was not a believer, paid me 25 cents to memorize the 23rd Psalm in the King James English. I could barely read, but it was, a quarter was a quarter. That was big money back in the, in the 1920s, right? So, <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me. Like He maketh me. To lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of thine enemies. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't know what my dad was thinking when he gave me that quarter. But I know what my heavenly father was thinking. He was thinking that my word will not return void. And that memorization paid for by my pagan dad stirred something in me and gave me a sensitivity to the word of God, an honor for who God was, so that when I heard the gospel, I didn't evaluate the 
truth claims of it. I didn't need an apologist to answer all the hard questions for me. I just knew this is from the Bible. It must be true. Because the Lord is my shepherd. Guys, God can do more with our weakness than we could ever do with our strength. God can do more with less, but imagine. Moms and dads, what if we gave Him more to work with? Proverbs 14.26 says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Those who fear the Lord create a refuge for their children. A place to run to when life is either too much or not enough. Moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, big brothers and big sisters, let's do that for the next generation. Let's pray. God, Your Word is awesome. It's powerful. It's alive. It changes us. And it prepares us to meet You. Lord, faith comes by hearing. Hearing of the Word of God. Lord, I thank You that the message of the Gospel shouts. It doesn't whisper. On every page and every story, we read it and long for the coming of Your Son. And when He is there, we are amazed in awe, astonished by who He is, by what He teaches, by how He lives. And when He dies, we are shocked, horrified, and blessed as we see that He dies for the sins of many. But we thank You for His resurrection and we thank You for the promise of His coming and that even now, He is building His kingdom in this world and in us. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Through Christ our Lord, Amen.